Welcome back to Worldview Matters. This is Ross and my cohort, Bob. Bob, good to be with you, my friend, on this Easter week, big week for the Christian faith. It certainly is, Ross. You know, the, our last show here at Worldview Matters, we were talking about the New Age movement, but because of the, uh, the timing and the calendar, you and I both thought it might be good to take a look at the Christian worldview, just uh, kind of a little sidebar. We're going to come back and finish that, that uh, the second part of that New Age thing. But this is a very pivotal week in the Christian calendar. It's also a very pivotal week in the historicity of the Christian worldview. And because everything really sort of rises and falls on the events that happened this week. Well, the truth is, if this week is not true, then Christianity, you can discard it completely because everything we believe hangs on the events of this particular week. No other worldview, whether it be theistic worldview of Islam or Judaism, can make the same claim that Christianity does, and that is the birth, death, uh, through crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so either this is truth or it is a hoax, and the entirety of the Christian faith rests on this week. You know, Ross, I couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, in my in my scriptural readings in preparation for this week, I went back and looked at the account that the Apostle Paul wrote to in his first letter to the Corinthian church. And maybe I could just read that as kind of a, uh, to tee up what we want to talk about about today. Paul, Paul's writing in chapter 15 uh, of his first epistle to the Corinthians. This is in verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Or else I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more that, that everything related to the Christian faith and to the worldview that's associated with that really does rise and fall on the event of the resurrection. In fact, uh, earlier this week in my own personal readings in the Scripture, I came across a passage in Paul's first uh, letter to the Corinthian church. And I think it might be good if we read this so that our listeners could kind of get a context of what we're talking about today. This is in chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 3. And Paul writes, For I received... Uh, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. And then he picks up again in verse 13. That's uh, down through verse 8. Then in verse 13 he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ have raised. Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And Ross, this is just significant doctrine. What Paul is saying here is that if the historical resurrection of Christ didn't happen, then the entire Christian faith is bogus. Did you get that? Absolutely. And it lays it on the line. It is either Christianity is true or Christianity is false. It can't be. I mean, truth is is absolute. If it is true, it's true for everybody. So what you believe, if you're not believing in what is true, then you are lost. Now, we're, we're laying it on the line, too, because we have said from the very beginning of this show that we want to present a number of different theological beliefs. But we do come at this from a Christian perspective. We have a Christian worldview. So we do believe that worldview matters, and this is the the apex. This is the point on which our faith in Christ rests. And, and Paul also hung, he, he laid it on the line. He yeah. laid it on the line himself in, in this particular passage and in many others. You can go back to the Gospels and uh, it, it said that basically God laid it on the line when he sent his son to, uh, to die on the cross. Well, and what's so amazing about this is there's an appeal to the historicity of these events and to the fact that there were eyewitnesses to these things. I want to come back to that as we talk about this some more, but this eyewitness idea gets us back to what we talked about early in in this series, that you you can't prove something scientifically that happened historically. But what you can prove is you can prove it, or you can at least prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Not beyond a scientific doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt based on the forensic evidence. And and one of the forensics here is there are these eyewitnesses. There are people who lived in the time of the historic person that we know as Jesus of Nazareth, who were there at his ministry events who were there at his crucifixion, which is documented historically, not just by believers, but by Roman authorities. Uh, And they were also there as eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And they're able to say, we saw him alive. In fact, there's a a passage in Peter in, in the second epistle that Peter writes, 
when he says, I want you to know something. He says, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Paul lays it on the line. Peter comes back and says, I want you to know I saw it with my own two eyes. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people who are non-believers are going to look at this passage and say, ah, look, if, if you have a book, the Bible, that is its own witness as to the truth, then how can you hang your belief on that? So there is a history. I know that there are other documents who that say the same thing that is said in this particular passage. Uh, maybe you know some uh, where some of those are, but uh, th- there is a historical, it's my understanding that there are over 500 references to the actual facts and events of Christ, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection. Um, I, I personally cannot quote those, don't know exactly where those are. Uh, maybe you do, Bob. Well, here's one of the things I think we have to remember as it relates to the forensics of all of this. And that is that Christianity was born in the midst of Judaism. And so you had hostile witnesses. You didn't just have guys who were saying, hey, we saw these things with our own eyes and inference. They could have made those things up. But all of this took place in the midst of two other groups of people who it was not in their best interest for Jesus to be alive from the dead. And those two groups of people were the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. Ross, all they had to do historically was say, hey, guys, this didn't happen. You're mistaken. You say you've got eyewitnesses. Guess what? We've got our eyewitnesses, too. Well, here's the body. We didn't see him die. You see what's going on here? Sure. So in the, midst, in the midst of this historicity, it would be like you and I saying, you know, I don't really believe that Richard Nixon was a real historical figure. I believe all those people made up that stuff about Watergate. Well, the, that's absurd because there are people who are still alive today that were alive during Watergate when that happened. So if I came back and said, I think the whole thing is either a myth or I think it wasn't reported right, we have enough hostile witnesses and pro-witnesses on both sides of this event for people to have really dug this stuff out and figured out what happened, but none of that took place. The Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities had no answer for the claims of these apostles who said, he's alive and we've seen him. That's what's so astounding about this. You know, there's a parallel to to World War II has a parallel here. When the U.S. troops began to go into the concentration camps and the POW camps, especially the concentration camps, Eisenhower said, take pictures of all of this because there will come a day when people will say this did not happen. And we're seeing that today. People are saying it didn't happen and that these things were staged and they didn't, it didn't actually occur. So you see a, a more current 
situation that's very similar to that. And there's a revisionist history that takes place and has taken place since the beginning of time. And you have to understand there's a motive behind revisionist history. It's not that people can't believe the evidence that was documented. It, Ross, it's that they don't want to believe the evidence that was documented. And that's different. And that's what's so astounding about the claims of Christianity. You know, it's interesting. You and I have been talking about worldview now for, gosh, half a year. And there's, there's really only four worldviews that are not based on philosophical propositions, but are based on historical figures. And they are, you know, Judaism was based on the faith and the teachings of the patriarchs, Abraham being the first. Uh, Buddhism was based on the teachings of Gautama Buddha, who lived about 500 B.C., uh, Islam was based on the teachings of Muhammad, who you know died in 632 A.D. We talked about that. And Christianity is based on the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, who died this week in 32 A.D. But here's what's so amazing about those four historical personalities or figures: is only one of them, only one, claimed that he was going to come back from the dead, and it was borne out in the testimony and evidence of his actual resurrection because nobody could produce the body, Ross. Think about that. Nobody could produce the body. If they wanted to discount it, don't you think the Romans, don't you think the Jews would have produced a body? And the argument is, well, his disciples stole it and buried it someplace different. There's a problem with that, though. These guys were a bunch of cowards just a few hours before he supposedly came back from the dead. Maybe, you know, I can see, you know, maybe one or two of them, you know, sort of uh, developing some gumption. But all of them, all of them and the eyewitnesses and all of them, most of them, in fact, being martyred for their death. Some people will die for a lie if they think it's the truth, but not too many people will die for a lie if they know it's a lie. It really, is, yeah, it really is interesting to look at the death of the disciples, and many of them were crucified up, upside down. I think Peter said he wanted to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be— he was not equal to Christ, and he did not want to be crucified in the same way. He wanted it to be worse. But you know, I've talked to a number of people in, about the Christian faith and about my worldview and Christianity, and we get to a point where it seems like that, okay, they've got their view and I've got my view. I come to a point and say, let me ask you this. If, in fact, you knew that Jesus Christ did come back alive from the dead, would that make a difference in your view? And I don't know that I've ever had anybody to say, nah, that wouldn't make any difference to me. Everybody will stop and say, you know, if that did happen, it would cause me to think differently. So it is the thing on which Christianity hangs together. It cannot hang together if Jesus Christ was not crucified and come back alive, as he said he would. Well, you know, and that's what the scriptures we mentioned earlier really say, that 
everything pivots on this event. And there were some things about this week. I know that most of our listeners probably are familiar with the Easter story, but you know, Ross, maybe it would take be beneficial if you and I just took a moment and just kind of recounted in a kind of a 50,000 foot view, what actually happened this week. You know, it started really on uh, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before supposedly he was raised from the dead when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, and most people look at that as kind of a double symbolism there. One, it shows that he was humble. The other, though, shows that it was a coronation event. And the Jews basically said, hey, tell these disciples of yours to stop proclaiming you king of the Jews. And Jesus said, if, you know, if, I don't, if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. Basically, Jesus did not discourage this coronation language. So Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the Sunday before his death, basically saying, I'm your Messiah which was an incredible event, as you and I have already talked about. Well, yeah, I think that we, we lose sight of the fact that this was the beginning on the Sunday before, before Easter. And this entire week, there's significance basically to every day. But, of course, it comes, it comes into the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Those are the, the big days and the celebration days. But maybe take the chronology there from Palm Sunday all the way through to uh, Easter Sunday, if you well, would. After, after Jesus gets into Jerusalem, he spends the first part of the week basically teaching in the temple, and he 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 does some he he says some amazing things uh, about. First of all, he makes it clear that there's a there are false teachers and there are true teachers. I mean, it's almost like he was goading the Pharisees because all week long he's proclaiming himself over and over again to be the Jewish Messiah, uh, giving everybody a chance to either accept that or reject that. And of course, uh, the, one of his last teachings happened with his disciples when he predicted his return historically at some point out in the future. You and I have talked about that some on this show, so we won't dwell on that right now. And then there's the event of the Last Supper, which he takes his disciples into a room and he begins to remind them that indeed he's going to be crucified, he's going to come back from the dead, and then, you know, right after that, they go to the garden, uh, Judas betrays him, comes to the garden with the authorities, uh, brings him before the Jewish tribunal on trumped-up charges, basically in violation of everything that the Jewish law taught. There were no witnesses, there was no account for cross-examination, uh, and then they basically bring him before the Roman authorities and say, look, you've got a choice, Pilate. Uh, either you kill him or we're going to basically make it politically really difficult for you. But Pilate still wanted to deliver him. He had a, his wife had a dream and said, you know, you need to be careful with this guy. Uh, there's something going on here that's bigger than you can, you can understand. And so Pilate says, who should I release? According to tradition, uh, he would release one prisoner uh, for the Jews. And, of course, they cried out, uh, we, don't, we want you to re release Barabbas for us, who was, this in, he was this rebel. The Roman authorities hated Barabbas because he'd killed a lot of their soldiers. 
And so it was really difficult for Pilate to be able to release Barabbas, but the Jews asked for Barabbas' release. And then Pilate, you know, says, well, what should I do with Jesus? And of course, the Jews cry out, crucify him, crucify him. He's hung on a cross, which was a horrible, horrible form of capital punishment between two thieves. He dies on the day of his resurrection, which was amazing because uh, usually it took you several days to die on the cross. That was what's so horrible about it. And uh, in order to prove that he was dead, uh, one of the Roman soldiers actually took a spear and punctured his heart with it. And instead of blood, you know, pumping out like it would do if he was alive, blood and water poured out, which showed that his blood was probably already clotted and he was already dead. And they took him down from the cross, put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. After Joseph petitioned Pilate for his body, uh, Pilate said, you can have his body, but he also sent a, a Roman guard to make sure that the tomb was sealed and a guard was stationed because the Jews had warned Pilate that his disciples uh, had been teaching that he was going to come back from the dead. So there were precautions taken that his disciples wouldn't come in the middle of the night in this spate of heroism, these guys who were cowards just a few days, you know, a few hours before. And so they put not just a guard, Ross, they put basically a Navy SEAL team in front of that tomb, and they sealed it with a Roman seal. They rode probably they rolled a two-ton stone in front of it, and yet somehow three days later, the stone is not just rolled away; the stone is moved away. It's picked up and carried away. The grave clothes are laid inside the tomb. The body's gone. The Roman soldiers are basically intimidated by the appearance of what they say are angels. And Jesus comes back from the dead. Now that is an amazing, an amazing story. I mean, you think about this. There are, like I said before, there were hostile groups that did not want to see him come back from the dead. And they took precautions to ensure that his body would stay where it was buried. But something happened, and it changed history. It is the pivotal point of history. Great, great uh, chronology there. Uh, very, very interesting. What do you think the, the biggest problem that people have in coming to grips with the, the claim of Christ coming back from the dead? Well, you know, that's a great question. I all, all I can really do is, is I, I, can, I can give two answers for that. I, I think there's, there's a biblical answer for that. And then, Ross, if I could, I'd, I'd like to give a personal answer for that. I think the biblical answer, and we've talked about this some before in some of our previous shows, is that according to a, a Christocentric, monotheistic worldview, a creator God made us and put us on the earth to worship him and to give an account to him. But according to the biblical account, man rebelled against God. And from that point, from that moment of, of human rebellion, there's been a bias against God as our king and as our ruler. None of us 
wants to give, uh, none, of a, none of us wants to be under his authority. There's a, there's a rebellion that's going on in every man's heart that biases us against God. And scripture goes on to say that because of that unwillingness to submit ourselves to our creator, scripture says that a fallen angel, the God of this world, we know him as the devil or Satan, is able to blind people's eyes. And so they can't see what's so incredibly evident. All these facts are not, as we've said, beyond you know, a shadow of a doubt, but they're beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's a moral bias. And Ross, there was a moral bias in my heart. Uh, I was a undergraduate student at Columbia University in the spring of 1972, 41 years ago, when I came to grips with my own mortality, my own, where my life was headed, the fact that I realized there was something missing in my life. And in a, in a moment of honesty, I said, you know, if everything about Christianity seems to rise and fall on the person of Jesus Christ, and for the first time in my life, Ross, I was willing to say to God, if you're really who you say you are, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is alive from the dead, then I'm a fool if I don't open myself up to those truths. And in a dorm room, Ross, uh, on right outside of Broadway in New York City, I basically, I'm not even sure you could count it as a prayer. It was more of a opening of the attitude of my heart to where I said, Lord, if you're really real, if there is a Lord, and if you're really the Lord, I want to know you and I want to make myself open to you. And Ross, in the course of the next several weeks, amazing things began to happen in my life. Things that I'd never understood before suddenly made sense to me. So in answer to that question, I think that there's a moral door that has to be opened in everybody's heart. And I hope our listeners who have opened that moral door, the door of their heart, if you will, will recognize that they did that. And those who haven't yet done that would have the courage to say, if these things are really real, I'm willing. I'm willing to believe them. Willing to believe them. You hear that? You hear that, Ross? It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a willingness. It's not just a, it, it, I think it happens first in our hearts and then it sort of, has a way of finding itself into our reason and our logic. They're not, they're not in, in war against each other, but it's like there's something here that's supra-rational, even though it's incredibly rational once you see it. But until we open our heart door, our heart attitude, we won't be able to perceive it. I'd like to give a little background, if I could, to the listeners. And this is a personal, personal view also. First time I saw Bob was 58 years ago. We've become and have been fast friends for over 40 years now. The guy who just gave you this message, Bob, I'll tell you a little bit about his background. He was um, basically all-city athlete in three sports in a city in Tennessee. He went to uh, an Ivy League school on scholarship. He was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. 
had an opportunity in New York with uh, one of the largest restaurant tours there to uh, have a career with in that restaurant, an opportunity to possibly move into Hollywood and and do a number of things like that. And God took this young man, brought him unto himself, and he has been, uh, he has taken in every person of who's having difficult time into his home. He and his wife have ministered to them physically, um, spiritually, and there will be a host of witnesses in heaven who will stand up and say, if it hadn't been for Bob, I would not have come to know Christ. So that's the man that just spoke those words to you. I know that he lives everything that he says. He doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. So go back and listen to this message again. It's one that comes from a man who knows. So thanks for being willing to share that. I hope I haven't gone too far in sharing those little insights into you, Bob. Well, Ross, you're very kind. I appreciate those, uh, those words of affirmation. And I would quickly point out that I wasn't exactly on a spiritual journey when I went to, to Columbia. I, uh, my motive was very self-centered and self-serving. I wanted to be rich and famous and live my life for myself and make as much money as I could, gain as much notoriety as I could, uh, amass as much power as I could so I could go through life controlling and manipulating for only my own selfish reasons. But in the middle of that, someone that I ended up seeking was seeking me first. And, but as I, as I opened my heart to Christ, I came to realize that following him made the most sense of anything I could do. And I would say to our listeners, anything that anyone else could do. I, I know our time's about up today, Ross. I'd, I'd like, we're going to come back and do one more show on this Holy Week, this week of Easter. But as we look at some of the reasons, some of the, the obstacles that prevented Christ from being resurrected, if you will. I mean, the fact that Roman... Roman executioners carried out his death. It wasn't just a, it wasn't just anybody. These guys were professionals. They buried him in a tomb that was inaccessible. They placed a guard around that tomb. They rolled a stone around over that opening and they sealed it. And yet, in spite of all those precautions, something happened. And I don't, you know, when we come back, we can look at each of those again. But. I guess I would just like to, again, appeal to our listeners and say, you know, I don't think there is enough evidence to ever convince anyone who does not want to be convinced. But there's ample evidence to convince anyone who's willing to be convinced. Who's willing to be open-minded. Absolutely. I think this is a good place to break off this show. We'll We'll have another one. Our next show will be on the same subject. We'll pick up here and look into some other areas uh, of a similar nature, and it will be uh, hopefully poignant. I hope that the story that Bob just told about his life will 
reach the heart of someone out there who is seeking, who's seeking truth. But Bob, thanks so much for your willingness to give insight into you and how you came to know Christ himself, yourself and himself as your personal Savior. But thank you to all the people at Big Brains Media. We appreciate the opportunity to share these thoughts with you. There are many other shows on Big Brains Media. Go to the website and you can see those. They have a broad cross-section of topics and subjects. Thanks to JP and James Spann for giving us this opportunity. We'll see you again next time. This has been Worldview Matters, brought to you by Big Brains Media. To leave feedback for Ross or Bob, visit us at www.bigbrainsmedia.com.